Well, the investments that we're making today, really, because these are sort of structural adjustments that are being made, the investments that we're making today likely won't bear their their fruits for for many years to come. I mean, this this is a generational approach. But if we're not involved, and if we're looking for quick wins, um, and, and we don't find them, and we disengage, we would be doing so to our own detriment. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the ongoing political, economic, and humanitarian crises stemming from the Northern Triangle. That term refers to Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Why are tens of thousands of immigrants fleeing those countries? How did the Obama and Trump administrations respond to this migration? And what is the Biden administration currently doing? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Dr. Paul Angelo. Dr. Angelo is a fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. His work focuses on U.S.-Latin American relations, transnational crime, police reform, and immigration. As a former active duty naval officer, he also has extensive experience in military and government service. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, land border encounters at America's southern border are far outpacing the incoming numbers we saw in 2018, 2019, and 2020. And to me, what seems particular about this is that these higher numbers seem to be fueled by a rising migrants coming from the so-called Northern Triangle. So to start us off, could you explain to our listeners what the Northern Triangle is? And what are the characteristics of the migrants leaving that region? The Northern Triangle refers to the three countries at the northern part of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Other people refer to them as the Central America Three, the CA3. Uh, and for much of the past decade, people from these countries have represented the majority of the encounters with irregular migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Some of our listeners will recall the child migrant crisis in 2014 when Tens of thousands of unaccompanied minors turned themselves in at U.S. border crossings. Many of these individuals were fleeing gang violence and recruitment by Maras, which are the, the gangs that are particularly active in Honduras and El Salvador. Likewise, over much of the past decade, we were seeing more family units than we had ever seen in, in previous history. Uh, parents with their children and uh, who, who were seeking uh, refuge from the scourge of violence that had beset Central America. And this endured throughout the Obama years and into the early Trump years. But the pandemic really changed everything. As borders were closed and there was an overall sense of uncertainty that beset the region, migration dropped in 2020. But the pressure to migrate never went away. In fact, it increased, particularly as the pandemic laid bare the deficiencies in governance, the fragility of public health systems, and the availability of economic opportunities for so many people in Central America. And fiscal year 21 is shaping up to be the largest year of migration in some 20 years. Um, I think it is responding initially to the pent-up demographic pressure after having had closed borders in 2020. Uh, but there's no denying that the, the, the situation after two back-to-back -back Category 4, Category 5 hurricanes in Central America in late 2020 uh, are, you know, significant contributing factor to the uptick in migration that we're seeing. Likewise, what we saw during the Trump administration was basically an instinct or uh, policies that kicked the ball down the court. There was some symbolic cooperation with the countries of the Northern Triangle, um, 
to to work on extending asylum to third country uh, refugees in Central America. Uh, but it really, those prop policies really didn't keep people from moving. Uh, they rather just set them up uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexican side of the border. Uh, and so now what we're seeing it, as the U.S. reactivates its immigration system, as it reactivates its asylum system, uh, we're seeing an uptick in people who are seeking to gain access to the United States. As you mentioned, um, and you brought up the fact that people do not simply pick up their lives and make uh, the treacherous journey from the Northern Triangle through Mexico and into the United States, uh, as you as you mentioned, such as violence and, and and environmental factors and the pandemic exposing the deficiencies of government, something has to be driving this. Um, my following question is whether you could elaborate a little bit more on on what these factors are and why they have been prevalent for so long. Because I believe that in your writing, you mentioned that, that this is not a new thing. This is a, a migration crisis that has been going on for almost a, two decades. So Correct. why are people continuing to flee? Could you expand on that, please? Sure. When we talk about migration from any part of the world, really, we, we have to look at pull and push factors. In the case of Central America, Central American migration to the United States, the pool factors are things like family reunification. This is a region of the world where large migrant flows or refugee flows began really dating in the 1980s when there was a mass exodus of people who were fleeing the violence of Central America's civil wars. And so there are a lot of families in Central America that have ties to family members in the United States. And part of the pool that we see is an attempt to reunify those families. Secondarily, a pool factor is our own economic prosperity here in the United States, particularly in the wake of, of the, the COVID-19-induced uh, recession that beset the, the, the Western hemisphere. But the United States economy reactivated rather quickly. So there is an availability of jobs here, which is a pulling people from Central America to the United States, where they see an opportunity for improved economic prosperity. But the, the push factors, which is sort of what we talk about when we talk about the root causes of migration or addressing the root causes of migration as a way of reducing the, the problems that we see at the U.S.-Mexico border, refer to those factors um, in Central America and, and, and what, I guess what, the, what undergirds them all is a real failure of local governments to meet the basic needs of, of, of their people so those countries can thereafter unlock the, the human potential uh, and the human capital that, that exists in Central America. And I, I think, you know, one of the major push factors really is the lack of economic opportunities. The countries of the Northern Triangle are severely unequal. They are among the lowest, they have among the lowest GDPs per capita in the entire Western Hemisphere. Uh, there's a high percentage of each country is employed in the informal economies, uh, upwards of about 75%, uh, which means that people aren't linked uh, to formal economic institutions, that they don't have um, employment benefits, they often don't have health insurance provided for them. Uh, and this is also a region of the world where uh, elites are paying relatively low tax revenues. Guatemala has among the lowest effective tax rates in the world and reinvests a very small percentage of its GDP in social services. 
which leads to us to a situation in which people throughout the region are heavily dependent on remittances. In fact, remittances comprise 20%, uh, excuse me, 21% of the region's gross domestic product in 2020. In addition to a failure of economic, uh, uh, a failure of the economic system to provide uh, people's basic needs, or for people to be able to meet their basic needs, you also have chronic violence that has beset the region. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there's a legacy of civil war, and in the post-war period, there are a lot of people who are trained in violence who are not absorbed by the peacetime economy, and so many of these individuals found camaraderie, a sense of belonging, and protection in the region's gangs or maras. And as these gangs began to compete for territory in order to participate in predatory crime like extortion and drug sales, uh, the, the region became incredibly violent. And the homicide rates that we saw in the early 2010s made the countries of the Northern Triangle the most violent uh, of anywhere in the world. We've seen homicide rates drop off over the past five years, uh, especially during the pandemic. Last year was a, a record low in terms of homicides across the Northern Triangle for the past decade. Um, but there are some indications that these results may not be sustainable. Um, likewise, and I think this responds to the, the increase in family units um, and, and children, uh, there is a scourge of gender-based violence across uh, Central America. Uh, El Salvador has the world's highest rate of femicide, and Honduras remains among the most dangerous countries in the world to participate in LGBTQ activism, for instance. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who are fleeing Central America based on aspects of their, their gender identity. Uh, and then finally, I would point to climate change as a significant root cause that is spurring uh, an uptick in migration from the Northern Triangle to the United States. As I mentioned, you had Category, four, category 5 back-to-back -back hurricanes in the fall of 2020 which upset traditional livelihoods, killed 140,000 some odd livestock. Um, but that happened already in a very fragile uh, agricultural space. The annual average rainfall over the last decade has been about 40% less than it was two decades ago. And higher temperatures have also led to uh, the, the spoiling of crops year after year. Coffee rust, uh, most notably, put 1.2 million farmers out of work in the Northern Triangle countries between 2012 and 2015. Uh, and so, you know, it's against this backdrop of climate change, chronic violence, and a lack of economic opportunities that people are seeking to pick up and uh, try their fates elsewhere. So on the pool side of things, we have the family reunification question. We also have the fact that the United States is economically prosperous and offers a lot of jobs. And on the push side of things, um, you're saying that there's a lot of violence that is, and that's a legacy of, of past civil wars and past conflicts. And we have failure of governments and corruption, and of course, gender-based violence and environmental factors most, more recently. Now, Paul, people living your country is one of the worst socioeconomic problems that a country can have. So I would love to know how have the governments in the Northern Triangle, in you know El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, responded to the substantial increase in emigrants? Have they taken steps to try and alleviate these concerns? Well, you know, I think what 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 this really gets to is what are the countries of the region doing to address corruption and impunity? Because when we look at the the three major factors that I discussed when talking about 
the, the root causes of migration, corruption and impunity are, are, are the root of all the rest of these countries' woes. It, you know, corruption is why people do not have formal economy jobs or access to healthcare. It's why people don't have bank accounts. It's why people don't have uh, well-defined property rights. It's why people build their homes and farms on land that is perennially vulnerable to erosion. And it's why in some areas, gangs determine political outcomes. Uh, and so unfortunately, in, in, in terms of the administrations that we have in, in power right now in the three Northern Triangle countries, there isn't really a strong commitment to anti-corruption. We saw uh, some willingness to cooperate with the United States on anti-corruption measures during the end of the Bush administration and throughout the Obama administration. Uh, and there were certainly carrots that were provided by the United States government uh, to engage in re real an anti-corruption work. Um, however, the governments of the region experienced considerable democratic backsliding and a major economic contraction during the, the, the Trump administration and during the pandemic, reversing many of the, the gains that were being made uh, in the early part or in the mid part of the 2010s. In El Salvador, you have President Bukele, uh, who has managed to reduce violence in the country and is meeting people's basic needs through uh, by, by providing them the canasta básica, which is sort of the, the what people need uh, in terms of order to put food on the table for their families uh, in a given week. Uh, however, President Bukele is at odds with the Biden administration's push to revitalize democracy in the region. He most uh, recently in May dismissed the attorney general and several Supreme Court magistrates and has uh, really overseen a militarization of, of the public public space, which is uh, contravenes the spirit and the letter of the peace accords that were signed to put an end to El Salvador's civil war in 1992. In Honduras, we see um, that cooperation has been reduced to a minimum, given the president uh, Hernandez's perceived complicity and even potential involvement in drug trafficking over several years. Federal prosecutors in New York named him a co-conspirator in his brother's drug crimes, and evidence suggests that in 2017, he stole uh, his reelection. Um, and so there, and there still remains in Honduras a lot of despair over that debacle. And then in Guatemala, uh, which is a place where Vice President Harris initially uh, visited um, in order to make inroads uh, on helping address the root causes of migration in the region. Um, you know, we, we haven't seen uh, the, the same kind of commitment to anti-corruption that I think the, the Biden administration uh, was hoping to get out of President Yamate. Um, and uh, in fact, just about three weeks ago, the country's attorney general fired the, um, the country's top anti-corruption prosecutor, uh, who, which is, who is somebody who the, the U.S. government is closely aligned with and allied to in, in continuing the anti-corruption work uh, that the U.S. government has supported over the past two decades. Uh, and so unfortunately, in, in terms of the, the, the heads of state of the three Northern Triangle countries right now, um, not a whole lot is being done to alleviate the, the, the concerns that the U.S. government has as it pertains to the root causes of migration. And between the Northern Triangle and the United States is, of course, Mexico. What has the Mexican government done to slow down or stop Central American migrants from passing through its territory? Or is the Mexican government just not as invested in doing so since they know they're just passing through? Well, Mexico has long been a critical partner to regulating the flow of migration from the Northern Triangle to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, in 2014, responding to the child migrant crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the Obama administration and the administration of Enrique Peña Nieto 
cooperated on something known as the Southern Border Strategy, which sought to seal off the Guatemala-Mexico border uh, through improved surveillance coverage and intensification of uh, checkpoints by Mexican uh, police and military units. Uh, and in the months that followed that southern border strategy, we saw a reduction in the incidence of encounters of um, migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, the Lopez Obrador administration has done some of the same by sending the National Guard, a new security force that was stood up during the beginning of the AMLO administration, both to the northern and southern borders, and has cooperated with the U.S. government, cooperated with the Trump administration by agreeing to the Remain in Mexico program, which was a, a program that saw migrants uh, camp out in tent cities in Mexico as they awaited their immigration asylum hearings in the United States. Uh, which prevented them from entering U.S. detention facilities. Um, and so we have seen some, some malleability and some a, a great spirit of cooperation between the U.S. and Mexican governments, regardless of who is sitting in um, the, the, the presidency across either side of the border. Um, likewise, it, most recently, we're seeing that Me Mexico is taking in a record number of refugees and asylees in its own country. Um, from 2013 to 2020, Mexico granted refugee status to 62,000 people. But this year alone, the country uh, will process a record 90,000 applications for asylum and has already granted uh, asylum to 12,000 of those. Uh, so we're seeing Mexico stepping up in, in its own right in extending asylum guarantees to people who, who seek uh, refuge in Mexico instead of in the United States. Uh, but I will say that Mexico really does need to start addressing its own migration problem. In fact, in this fiscal year, 41% of migrants who have been encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border are actually Mexican. Um, and, and so that, that means, you know, getting a handle on Mexico's own problems related to drug violence. The last two years have been, uh, have had the, recorded the, among the highest homicide rates in the history of Mexico. It also means developing the southern part of the country, which is a, the place from which so many migrant, Mexican migrants uh, are, are leaving due to a lack of employment opportunities and underdevelopment. Uh, and it means providing people, Mexicans, with dignified work that ties them to uh, the formal economy. Uh, and those are outstanding challenges that the United States and Mexico will, will need to work together on in order to resolve. And Paul, now that we have discussed the, the origins of the Northern Triangle migration crisis, and um, now that you mentioned briefly what's going on in Mexico as well, I would love to turn our attention to the United States as well, and how this influx of migrants is affecting the United States and how the country has reacted thus far. So for some context, I know that you already mentioned some of the strategies that the Obama administration and the Trump administrations pursued, but for some context, what strategies um, the, the the last two administrations try to to attempt in order to manage this irregular migration from the Northern Triangle. Sure. Well, the Obama administration, in response to the child migrant crisis in 2014, reoriented what was previously known as the Central America Regional Security Initiative, CARSI, and was re reoriented and rebranded as the Central America Strategy. And this was an effort that was shepherded by then Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, and it complemented 
and another effort that was ongoing um, called the Alliance for Prosperity, which involved the local private sector in Central America, the American Development Bank, and the U.S. government as a way of stimulating productivity and employment, strengthening democratic institutions, and improving public security. Again, going back to those uh, root causes. Um, and in the oper- period of operation of the Central America strategy and the Alliance for Prosperity, we did see some improvements in wages across the board. We saw reduction in unemployment, uh, slight reduction uh, in extreme poverty. And as I mentioned, we did see a, a steady decline of homicide rates across the Northern Triangle countries. Unfortunately, the pandemic lockdowns and the closed borders and the associated economic recession, uh, which regionally in Latin America, um, the GDP contraction was about seven and a half percent, erased many of those those initial gains. And, um, you know, I I think it it remains to be seen uh, how the the region will will be able to rebound, excuse me, rebound economically uh, in order to to get the, the, the countries of the region back to where they were prior to the pandemic. Um, the Obama administration strategy in the region also focused heavily on anti-corruption. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the, there was work that was being done by two international anti-corruption and anti-impunity commissions, one in Guatemala known as the CCIG, uh, which uh, was a UN-backed anti-corruption and anti-impunity organization um, that saw more than 400 convictions during its operation, including the conviction of a sitting president, and investigations into several other ex-presidents, um, which demonstrated that uh, with the, during the operation of the CCIG, uh, you know, really, any, there was no one in the country that was untouchable. Um, and simultaneously, we saw that through the operation of the CCIG, as it was taking on emblematic cases uh, and and seeking to reduce the homicide rate uh, through through taking on organized crime um, uh, in the country, we saw the murder rate uh, was cut in half during the op- operation of the CC. Um, and overall, I think it revealed the extent of organized crime's penetration of the political class in, in, in Guatemala. Uh, and in terms of a long-term uh, effect, helped develop civil society. Uh, and, and the protest movement that we see in recent weeks over the attorney general's firing of the anti-corruption prosecutor is a direct result of civil society's mobilization during the, the CCIG's operation. Um, likewise, in Honduras, we saw an organization of American states-backed anti-impunity and anti-corruption commission known as the MOXI, um, which again opened up uh, any number of, of investigations uh, that link that were linked to some of the, the country's uh, most um, visible movers and shakers, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the the Maxi didn't necessarily have the time to generate the results uh, that we saw uh, with the CC. And uh, regrettably, during the Trump administration, um, the this anti-corruption infrastructure uh, was dismantled and uh, didn't really get the kind of of support from the the, the White House that it had previously received. Um, during the, the Obama administration. Uh, and I, I say this is regrettable because I, I do believe that uh, these are often once-in-a-generation opportunities. Once you've dismantled anti-corruption architecture, it's very difficult to resurrect it. Um, and so now, unfortunately, on the anti-corruption front, we're operating from a, a real position of deficit. Uh, in addition to, to sort of a, a reversal or reorientation 
as it pertains to anti-corruption during the Trump administration. Um, you know, the Trump administration did elicit cooperation from the countries of the Northern Triangle, initially starting with a safe third country agreement with Guatemala and then following, uh, it, which was followed on by seven cooperation agreements with Honduras and El Salvador, which basically said that third country migrants, so migrants who are using the Central American Isthmus to transit uh, en route to Mexico or into the United States, uh, would have to apply for asylum in the, the countries of the Northern Triangle. Um, this was more symbolic than it was practical. The countries of the Northern Triangle don't have, a, a, you know, a large capacity or much of a tradition of being places for asylum. Moreover, being among the most dangerous places in the world, it was, uh, you know, ridiculous for a country like Guatemala to be considered a safe third country uh, for for people who were fleeing um, uh, persecution or violence in, in a third country. Um, and so, you know, I, we saw some some limited uh, uh, and at least symbolic cooperation. Um, but nonetheless, uh, unfortunately, the, the Trump administration did in 2019 freeze all U.S. foreign assistance to the Northern Triangle countries, um, which had been which had seen a plus up actually during the end of the Obama administration. And some of the programs that were being funded by U.S. assistance uh, really lost their momentum in this moment. And I think uh, right now the Biden administration is scrambling to try to figure out how to re resurrect those programs and reassure partners on the ground, particularly in civil society, uh, that the United States is back and, and that we are committed as a nation uh, to helping the uh, people on the ground in Central America uh, address in a meaningful way the root causes. And that's a great segue to my next question, which is, um, what has the Biden administration done with regard to this matter thus far? Uh, what policies have they rolled back from the Trump administration and which ones have they continued or brought back from the Obama administration? The Biden administration has essentially attempted to pick up where the Obama administration left off. Um, and in its earlier earliest days of, of, of operation, requested $4 billion from Congress, which would be a real plus up from the $750 million secured uh, in the last years of the Obama administration for the Northern Triangle countries. Um, President Biden had, had re initially responded to the migration situation uh, through a, a series of executive orders, uh, which sought to make our immigration and asylum systems more humane and bring the United States back in line with its international obligations, uh, which it had abandoned during the Trump administration. Um, President Biden raised the refugee cap uh, to 62,500 refugees um, from a historic low under the Trump administration, extended more guest worker visas to Northern Triangle citizens, and reactivated something known as the Central American Miners Program, which allows vulnerable miners to apply for refugee status in their countries of origin instead of having to make the dangerous trek from Honduras or El Salvador all the way through Mexico and to the U.S. border. Um, the Biden administration has also, uh, in terms of its dispersal of foreign assistance to the countries of the Northern Triangle, has decreed that it will... Um, condition its assistance on anti-corruption progress. And so, as, as it, I mentioned in sort of my initial comments, corruption and impunity are really at the heart of why people are fleeing uh, and, and sort of serve as the, the, the base uh, woe for all of the other ailments that afflict the Northern Triangle. Uh, and, and so um, this, it remains to be seen what this conditionality on anti-corruption looks like. 
Um, but nonetheless, I, I think we, we were seeing an initial push uh, to, to change the terms of the debate in, toward the anti-corruption space with the publication of the first ever angle list, which is a list of individuals from the countries of the Northern Triangle um, who are the United States has evidence of their being engaged in uh, acts of public corruption. Uh, and so it's, it's applying sanctions, freezing assets, uh, revoking visas for public officials in the Northern Triangle countries who are certainly on the wrong side of the law. And um, as we've discussed earlier, Paul, FY2021 border crossing numbers have far outpaced previous year's numbers. And um, I'm interested to know, because all these all these policies that Biden, uh, the President Biden undertook, seem to be aimed at fixing these um, push factors. And my question to you is, is this just a case of of the Biden administration getting unlucky with the timing of things and with the with, with the with the migration of things, or has the Biden administration taken any any bad policy steps and perhaps deserve some blame, in your opinion, for the rising migrations this year? Well, you know, I, I think there is a confluence of factors that are just making this year especially bad. Firstly, as I mentioned, the borders were closed for much of 2020, which prevented mass migration that we had normally seen. Uh, but I, I will remind everyone that in 2019, which is you know the height of the Trump administration's anti-migration rhetoric, that, w- that was a year that set a record uh, in terms of migrant flows for the past decade. Um, and so despite the fact that the Trump administration was, a, was trying to create a physical barrier through the, the extension of a border wall across the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, it was nonetheless the highest incidence of, of encounters at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in the previous decade. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, the t- 2020 was really a time where there was demographic pressure that was continuing to build. Uh, and w- as the borders reopened in late 2020, and then with the back-to-back hurricanes in Central America, and then with the Biden administration's reactivation of an asylum, uh, asylum system that had, for the most part, been shuttered, for the previous year and a half, uh, it was it was only natural that we were going to see an uptick or at least a resumption of the migrant flows that we had seen in 2019. Um, something else that's worth mentioning is the incidence of recidivism uh, in uh, among migrants. Uh, in terms of actual encounters at the border, um, we're sort of on pace for where we were in 2019, just a little bit higher, about 50,000 excuse me, in terms of individual migrants, we we're seeing about 50,000 more individual migrants at this point in the year by comparison to 2019. Uh, but the incidence of, of recidivism or people who are attempting to cross the border multiple times uh, has increased dramatically. And for la- the month of July, the recidivism rate was at 27%. That means that 27% of the people who were apprehended at the border had at some point in the previous year attempted to cross the border. Uh, and that's significantly higher uh, than it was uh, in, in previous years. Um, and, and part of that is responding to something known as Title 42, which is a public health measure that was implemented during the Trump administration as a way of, of preventing people uh, from coming across the United States in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and so instead of detaining somebody and uh, putting them in a U.S. detention facility for several weeks or months before before repatriating them, Title 42 basically just sends that individual back across the border. 
Uh, and knowing that many of these individuals as well, uh, an increasing percentage of them are Mexican, uh, it basically creates an incentive for people to try again and again to cross the border. Um, and so that this is why we're seeing uh, such a, a high incidence of encounters at the border uh, this year by comparison to previous years. And um, to start wrapping up the podcast, Paul, Car as you mentioned, CARSI and the Alliance for Prosperity Initiatives seem to have done a good job at improving wages, lowering homicide rates, raising slightly employment in the region um, before the pandemic, of course. Are there, aside from perhaps doubling down on these initiatives, are there other policies, in your opinion, that the United States should be pursuing now to alleviate the situation that we haven't discussed and perhaps are not being undertaken at the moment? Well, you know, I think that there were some things that we were doing in during the Obama administration. I worked during 2015-2016 at the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa in Honduras. And one of the, the programs that I was associated with was something known as the place-based strategy, uh, which was an anti-crime uh, and um, Uh, basically a crime prevention program that we were implementing in the most dangerous neighborhoods of uh, Tegucigalpa, San Pedro Suda, San Salvador, Guatemala City. Um, and they were really bearing fruit in some of the neighborhoods we were working, which were the most dangerous neighborhoods where the, had the highest homicide rates. We saw reductions of homicides in just two years by over 60%. Uh, they were really bearing fruit. Unfortunately, that momentum was largely lost in 2019 when the Trump administration froze U.S. foreign assistance uh, to Uh, those programs. Um, and so I, I think going back to what was working, it would be, it is a good place for the, the Biden administration to start. Um, you know, I, I would also say, however, there, there's room to improve our strategy. During the best years of, of uh, U.S. foreign assistance to Central America during the Obama administration, the rural space was largely, the agricultural space was largely left out of the equation. Um, we, we saw, you know, less than 15% of funds for the Northern Triangle countries went to agricultural space. And what we know in terms of migration flows is typically before people leave cities, they will have already left uh, a rural part of the country. And so I think the U.S. government has a great opportunity now to, to help make communities, rural communities, more resilient in the face of climate change. As we, and, and so engaging rural communities um, and urban communities alike is an opportunity or a silver lining uh, that, that we have in terms of the way that the United States can implement a meaningful strategy going forward. Um, and then finally, I would just say that, that by Vice President Harris's instinct to surge U.S. private sector investment in the region is a right one. Uh, in the absence of a real commitment of the local private sector to hire more, to provide benefits, to bring people formally on the payroll, which we haven't seen uh, for, for decades or, you know, Even during the Alliance for Prosperity, we didn't see a real commitment to formalizing um, work in, in much of Central America. I think it's, it's important to increase the share of multinational employers in this space uh, as a way of helping tie people to the formal economy. Uh, and so I, I think that there are some strategies that have worked or some strategies that remain unexplored in terms of U.S. policy where there really are opportunities for improvement. And Paul, before we go, I, I want to know what do the futures of the Northern Triangle countries look like to you? Um, especially because we have had this crisis for almost two decades, as, as you have written. 
And so how do we make sure that this next round of investment fixes the problem and so that we don't have to be dealing with this 20 years from now? How do how can we bring results as well? Well, the investments that we're making today, really, because these are sort of structural adjustments that are being made, the investments that we're making today likely won't bear their their fruits for, for many years to come. I mean, this, this is a generational approach. But if we're not involved and if we're looking for quick wins um, and, and we don't find them and we disengage, we would be doing so to our own detriment. In my, my estimation, U.S. assistance to the Northern Triangle countries is non-optional. And we're seeing the effects right now of the Trump administration's decision to disengage and halt aid in 2019. In Central America, and particularly in the Northern Triangle countries, the United States is an essential but insufficient actor. And ultimately, whether the Northern Triangle countries trend the way of Venezuela and Nicaragua, which are uh, authoritarian systems uh, with very high poverty rates uh, and, uh, again, a massive exodus of people uh, due to the lack of, of ability of people to meet their basic needs, or they trend in the way of Costa Rica and Chile, which are two of the country's most democratic and prosperous nations, I think that will depend not just on the United States, but will depend on the Central Americans themselves. Um, however, in order to unlock their human potential and to stimulate the kind of activism that is going to get real results across the board, you have to help pe people meet their basic needs. And this is a space where the United States can and, and should be helpful. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.